The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hello, all my favorite listeners in the whole wide world. Thank you so much for being with us today. You know, I do try to bring onto this podcast every conceivable kind of view within the vegan fold. And I think sometimes it's a little bit confusing because people do have differing views. And I actually like that because if we want there to eventually be a vegan world, we're not at all going to be thinking or eating just exactly alike. So uh, to that end, I want you to bear with me and do a lot of critical thinking and listening to all the guests and coming up with your own brilliant conclusions. Now, I know that last week we had on uh, Dr. John McDougall, who is fabulous and amazing and speaks his mind. And a couple of weeks before that, we had Jenny Messina, registered dietitian. Wonderful. We love Jenny. But their approaches to food are a little bit different. You know, they're not all that much different, but enough that some people were asking me questions and Jenny responded with a really interesting few paragraphs about her take on how much fat we should have in the diet. So that is on the Main Street Vegan show notes on the Even Vegans Die show, which was a couple of weeks ago, two weeks back, three weeks back. I don't know. I just fasted for seven days. Time kind of runs together. And speaking of fasting for seven days, I told you last week that my experience about a supervised water fast with Dr. Frank Sabatino at the Ocean Jade Health Resort in South Florida was going to be a blog post at MainStreetVegan.net, and I did get that posted yesterday. So if you're interested in learning a little bit about fasting or just having a human interest experience in knowing how I spent seven days in June, (laughs) you can go to MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. So today, no time like the present, right now, right now. I'm bringing you two wonderful guests. One is a return guest, a longtime friend of mine. Uh, that is Lisa Everett. Lisa is a pharmacist, and she's a very special kind of pharmacist. She is a compounding pharmacist. We're going to find out what that is. And she is also a clinical nutritionist and is, in fact, serving now as 
president of the big organization of clinical nutritionists. She can tell us all about that. After the break, we are going to keep it in the family. We are going to bring on Lisa's esteemed husband, Dr. Arden Anderson. And he is not only a physician, but he is an agriculturist. He understands about how food grows and about the soil and the land. And, oh, my gosh, should we eat organic and should we worry about GMOs? Well, we're going to find all that out after the break. But we're going to start with Lisa. Hey there, Lisa. Welcome to the program. Well, hello, Victoria. It's nice to be here. It is wonderful, wonderful to be speaking with you. And to anybody who doesn't remember when Lisa was on before, it was a long time ago. You might not have known about us then. I think it was 2012. But you can go to the archives, and the name of that program is Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Hormones But Were Afraid to Ask, because this is one of of Lisa's many areas of expertise. But just as, as we enter in today, Lisa, tell people... What is a compounding pharmacist? I think most of us think you go to the drugstore and the pharmacist pours pills in a bottle, but that's not what you do. Well, it's a, uh, it is not what I do. And actually, I haven't compounded in years. I uh, am a consulting, holistic clinical pharmacist. So I see patients um, all day long and by appointments. Uh, at work, but I do co-own O'Brien Pharmacy, which is a compounding pharmacy, which is just the pharmaceutical word for making medicine. So we have been making medicine without compromise for about 55, 56 years now here in Kansas City. So your dad was a pharmacist before you? My dad was a pharmacist before me, and then my brother and I took the pharmacy over, uh, bought it out about uh, 30-some-odd years ago. Aha. Well, I relate to that because my dad was a pharmacist, and then uh, he went on to be a doctor of osteopathy, uh, as is... um, uh, your husband is going to be joining us in a bit. So one of the things we talked about briefly yesterday, Lisa, when we were prepping for this, is the idea that I, I don't think anyone listening to this program would say, well, there's just never a need for pharmaceutical drugs. I mean, I think we all understand that there are cases when that is the only thing that is going to help, and we are all very grateful that they exist. But I think we also know that they're very much overused. We know people, probably older relatives, who are just on double-digit numbers of different kinds of pharmaceuticals. So how does someone with your natural and holistic bent kind of look at the whole pharmaceutical industry and our very drug-heavy kind of culture? Well, what I like about my education uh, is that I'm educated on both sides of the fence. I believe that there's a time and a place for everything, and I do not believe in exclusivity, that We are in a position, if we but would let go of the almighty dollar, to create the best health care system in the world, utilizing multiple, multiple modalities and herbs and homeopathy uh, and nutritional medicine, along with, when needed, pharmaceuticals. My experience of 40 years shows me that when people have a plant-based and vegan diet, one not just where they avoid meat, but they actually eat vegetables and fruits, that's a concept. Mm -hmm. When they augment that with appropriate amounts of vitamins and supplements, because let's face it, it ain't in the food anymore, when they balance their hormones, when they use appropriate uh, therapeutic levels of, say, herbs or nutritional medicine or homeopathy, their requirements for conventional medical uh, modalities are just 
not as heavy. They don't need the amount of drugs. They're able to wean off the medications. Uh, they don't require the uh, in hospital interventions. They, do, they go in for their yearly with the doctor, and the doctor gets to uh, help them enjoy a great uh, set of labs and a, a great bill of health. So when we have this lifestyle and we use other methods first, we generally don't need these drugs. However, when we need them, we need them. The, 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 the sad thing to me is, one, is most prescribers are ignorant of the proper use of medication, which ones to choose, they will typically prescribe those that were just presented to them by today's drug rep or whoever brought lunch today. It's the freshest in their mind. They forget that this drug is, this new drug is much more toxic than some of the older ones we already have on the market, but have gone generic and don't generate as much income for the drug companies or the uh, insurance companies or the, the, the whole um, medical system. So that's the sad thing to me is the improper use of medications and the fact that it is the only thing taught to a practitioner. It is the first line of defense with surgery being number two. So we, the proper use of medications alongside the changes of health in health uh, and, and lifestyle or and the temporary, you know, medications can be brought on board to temporarily bring down a horribly high blood pressure uh, and, and some critical issues can be life-saving for the moment while we make these other changes and let our bodies heal. Mm. Oh, I wish everybody thought like you. So when people are on several medications, should they go to see a pharmacist with that whole list and say, is there anything here that isn't going to be compatible? Well, that yes, that's always a good idea. Uh, however, most pharmacies have a computerized program that, uh, compares automatically the drugs they're on. But if they don't get their prescription filled at the same pharmacy or the chain, some of the chain stores are connected, but some of them are not, then, when the, then you definitely need to manually uh, get everybody on the same page. In uh, my practice, uh, the, uh, probably at least 50 to 70% of my day is helping people wean off those medications and doing drug tapers uh, while supporting the body so that they don't have, say, the withdrawal symptoms of being on Lexapro with Welbutrin and a sleep med like Ambien or Lunesta, you know, they uh, don't want to be on these medications, but they don't have any alternatives, as it were. And so my background is biochemistry, and what I try to do is help them restore their biochemical functioning and their balance and their deficiencies and their metabolic errors so that they don't require the medication anymore, so they can hold their own. But many of these drugs that are not classified as scheduled medications that are addictive are very addictive, even though they're not classified as such. And the FDA will not listen to us that Lexapro, um, whether it's Wellbutrin, uh, whatever those uh, modulators and mood modulators are, they're every single one addictive because they make your brain dependent on them. And, it's, and, and we know the mechanism, Prozac, finally admitted it after it, the little Eli Lilly who makes Pro, Prozac, they finally admitted it about uh, five to eight years after Prozac was on the market. 
and they all cause um, homicidal or suicidal tendencies. And they're not listing the homicidal tendencies, but all but one of our mass shootings involved the key persons on those drugs. Oh, it's fascinating. All but one of them. I'm waiting to see this latest one. What drug was he on oh. or she? So, Lisa, I know that you're... Your great passion, and certainly at this point in your life, is nutrition. And I think a lot of the listeners, and I myself, I'm a little bit confused. What is the difference between clinical nutritionist and registered dietitian? And then we also Ah. know that there are all kinds of people who, I don't know, took a course online or whatever and say they are nutritionists, which is kind of one of my pet peeves because I think that's really misleading. So can you clear up? It is very misleading. Yeah, I can. So the education of a dietitian is uh, in the universities that, and the textbooks, the lecturers, and uh, their entire education process is from industry. It's an industry-based education. So their textbooks are literally funded by and written by hired help from Cargill, Pillsbury, General Mills, and the like. And they haven't changed their recommendations in 200 years unless they go on and get more education. If they go on for another couple years outside of the conventional nutritional, uh, conventional dietary, they really are taught dietetics and not nutrition. Nutrition is the layperson's name for biochemistry. So they're dietitians. I'm a clinical nutritionist. Now, clinical nutritionists can help people with an ongoing pathology. Dietitians cannot. They are working with diabetics now and so forth, but they don't manage their insulin. They don't manage their meds. They tell them how to eat, and we all know how that's working for them. Uh-huh. So. So a nutritionist, first of all, is based out of the school of biochemistry rather than of school of dietetics. Now, a clinical nutritionist can work with somebody who's sick. In my organization, the International and American Associations of Clinical Nutritionists, those persons, most of those, are uh, pharmacists, physicians, maybe nurse practitioners, dietitians who've, who've come and studied with us and sat for our boards. Um, most of us are people who uh, have another medical degree. When it comes to things like this, if, if a nutritionist and a dietitian, and just a nutritionist per se, cannot touch your meds, cannot make any recommendations about that, only a pharmacist, who is, or a physician, a DO or an MD, can, and we have a lot of chiropractors in the organization, and they can't touch any of that. So then you've got to find somebody who can help you wean off the drugs or to know what kinds of therapeutic levels are required to actually uh, promote healing and repair in your body. Mm-hmm. So those are the main differences. Okay. Well, that's really good to know. I think that the dietitians that most of us know as as vegans are, you know, pretty spectacular. Um, They're all part of the vegetarian nutrition practice group of the American uh, Academy of of Dietetics. And we always like to tell people to check them out at VND. That's for vegetarian nutrition well, I don't know, VND, vegetarian, nutrition, I don't know, dietetics, practice group, PG, vndpg.org. I'll put that on the show notes as well. And also uh, the reference to the International Association of Clinical Nutritionists, of which you are a part and president of the American Association. That is all and very cool. Uh-huh. Yeah, Ooh, I'm president of wow. both. And the, the, And so the... Uh, the vegan dietetics uh, group are great at, you know, talking to you about how to eat and to um, do our best. Hopefully they push organics and non-GMOs, but to do our best to get as much nutrient-dense food as possible when that's not enough to heal you because you're sick, 
then that's where someone like uh, myself comes into yeah, play. I get it. That's why we're talking. So, everybody, stay tuned. We're going to take a little bitty break, and we will be back uh, more with Lisa Everett. If you can stay with us, Lisa, and we're also going to bring on the good Dr. Arden Anderson right after this. Wouldn't you like to share the programs that inspire you most with audiences around the world? That's easier than ever with mobile giving. Just text Unity Radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find. listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everybody. So nice to have you with us today. Guess what? We have a brand new sponsor. It's so cool. People are coming to us. So it is my pleasure to welcome healthiq.com. You know them from their fun and challenging online health quizzes, but they have also teamed up with many of the country's top life insurance companies to offer savings to some very special people, certain athletes, and guess who else? Us! That's right. There's a vegan savings on life insurance because somebody has noticed that we tend toward good health. Now, I think I know a couple of your questions. One is probably, is this health insurance? No, it's life insurance, the kind that protects your family if you're not here anymore. And then you might be wondering, is this a vegan company? No. But the only dietary choice qualifying for savings right now anyway is Isn't that cool? So check it out at healthiq.com slash Main Street, and I'll put that on the Main Street Vegan Podcast show notes as well. And thanks, Health IQ, for noticing how well we're all doing. Also, if you are not in the Main Street Vegan database, and you can certainly get 
onto that by going to MainStreetVegan.net, clicking on the top of the homepage, subscribe to the Main Street Vegan. But if you haven't done that, the Main Street Minute, I'm sorry, if you have not done that, you may not know that I'm going to be part of a very cool free telesummit hosted by Jennifer Cornbleet, known for her fabulous cookbook, Raw Food Made Easy for One or Two People. I'm on my third copy because I spill so much stuff on it. Jennifer has invited a host of experts who are passionate about healthy food and have turned that passion into a career to share their experience and wisdom. It is called the Tasty Life Summit, and the link to that is... Mm, it's kind of long. The Tasty Life Summit dot com slash go slash Victoria slash. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. Go to the show notes, Main Street um, Vegan Podcast show notes, and you will read all about that. Uh, Miyoko Shinner is going to be part of it. Chef AJ, Tess Shallis, Chef Jason Wyrick. It's going to be really, really good and way inspiring. And speaking of inspiring and informative and all the rest, it is my pleasure now to introduce to you our second guest, along with Lisa Everett Anderson. Dr. Arden Anderson is in family practice and occupational medicine physician, combining the best of conventional and holistic nutritional medicine uniquely to many underserved patients who would otherwise have no exposure to holistic medicine. He is a member of the Physician Leadership Committee for Providence Medical Group, Flight Surgeon and Chief of Aerospace Medicine in the Air Force Reserves, President of his Subspecialty Association, American Osteopathic Association of Prolotherapy Regenerative Medicine. And here's what's really interesting and really cool, and probably you're not going to find a lot of doctors who can say this. He is additionally trained as an agricultural consultant, author, international teacher of holistic and nutritional farming practices. In fact, his bachelor's degree was in agriculture and agricultural education. His master's is a science in public health. And his Ph.D. is in agricultural biophysics. So, Dr. Anderson, you've been busy. Yes, ma'am. Thank you very much, Victoria, for having me on. And I certainly am looking forward to um, many times in the future, perhaps. Well, I need to get a trip home out there to Kansas City and connect in person with all the wonderful people out there who are doing so many cool things. So when I think about your life, your background, and your experience, I think of a wonderful quotation from another fellow that I believe comes from the great state of Kansas. And he said, eating is an agricultural act. And I think we forget that these days. So tell us how agriculture and medicine connect. Well, that's actually a very uh, correct statement. And we eat food, and food is produced by agriculture. So there is an absolute direct connection. And the quality of that food, whether it be the nutritional value or a non-nutritional substantive additive to that, like pesticides or GMOs or something, determine the quality of that food. And that quality then determines how we respond to that food and ultimately then our health or disease status. And so whatever goes on in agriculture ultimately really determines what our health is going to be. And we talk about the problems of obesity and diabetes and cancer and heart disease and so on and so forth. And most people only think of that, particularly conventional physicians, only think of that as calories in, calories out. They have no comprehension that there is a difference in the quality of the calories. There's a difference in what goes along with those calories. And so... Um, it's very important to understand that if agriculture doesn't put the basic minerals into the food to begin with, it doesn't matter what quantity you do or don't eat, you're not going to get those nutrients. If there's no selenium in your broccoli, it doesn't matter if you eat 10 pounds of broccoli a day, you're still not going to get that selenium. And so that nutrition that Lisa talked about really comes back to what did the farmers do in order to get it in there to begin with, because that's really the best way for us to 
um, collect that nutrition in our body is through our food. So when did the health of the soil start to decline and why? Well, good question, and that may be a little bit of a debatable thing, but we know at least in the 1800s, really as soon as farmers or as as, as soon as people began farming collectively on the ground and destroying the soil, uh, burning it, clearing it, plowing it, letting it erode, and taking and not putting anything back, so certainly in the late 1800s, but Rudolf Steiner recognized at the turn of the century, 1800s to 1900s, that there was a significant decline in nutrient value of the food back to the farm. In 1936, Charles Northern, a gastroenterologist, talked in front of the U.S. Congress and read into the congressional record that the correlation between nutrient density in the food and gastro diseases, stomach diseases, GI diseases, was a direct correlation, and it was because of the decline of the nutrient value. So it's only continued throughout the 20th century, and the so-called Green Revolution really accelerated that decline And that's really a testament to, if we look at the research, says that we've lost over 50% of our soils over the last 100 years. We have polluted most of our water, and uh, both underground and uh, streams and rivers, with pesticides, with soils from um, eroding. So that decline has been with us, you might say, for as long as we've decided to abuse the soil and not really cherish the soil as we should, like most organic farmers do. So should we be eating organic? And and I want to kind of do a double question here because I know you also work with with people who don't have a lot of money. And, you know, when I'm just shopping for my husband and me, I, I don't really notice a whole lot of difference in the cost of organic versus conventional. But mm-hmm. when I host Main Street Vegan Academy and I am cooking for 20 people, I think, oh, my gosh, somebody with a large family? The difference is substantial. So how important is it? What do you advise? That's a very good question, and that is a question that every consumer asks, basically. And um, I I don't know if there's an absolute answer to that. The the answer to that is uh, yes on both sides. The unfortunate thing is is some of the absolute best food that you possibly can purchase and some of the absolute worst food you can absolutely purchase is all organic. And so the question you have to ask, why could we have such a dichotomy here? Some of the best and some of the worst have an organic label on it. It's because it goes back to agriculture. It goes back to the farm. And what is the farmer doing to get the nutrient density into that food? So if we have the absolute best quality food coming off from that organic farm, the best quality food then in the store, that is a bargain at any price because that's not going to make you sick, number one. That's going to provide you with a nutrient that you need. And number two, it's not going to rot in the refrigerator. So you buy a head of lettuce or a tomato, it's still going to be there a week from now being in the crisper. However, if we happen to purchase the poor quality organic, if that happens to be the only thing that's available, that is a poor purchase at any price as well because it doesn't have the nutrient density that we need in order to help our bodies and it's not going to hold up in the refrigerator. So we buy lettuce or tomato. Um, in two or three days, that has turned to mush in the refrigerator and we have to throw it away. So it was expensive at any and every price, and that's what confuses people so much. Well, you've sure confused me because I thought if it said certified organic, that was all I had to worry about. So how how do I as a consumer know even within organic what's good and what isn't? Great question. And what we have to learn then is how to select food. And that has to do with just learning basic things about what does it look like, what does it smell like, what does it feel like, what does it taste like. And most importantly, if they can understand the concept of BRICS, B-R-I-X, and look up what a refractometer is, 
Refractometer is a little device that measures the sugar content. So if you squeeze the juice out of a tomato and put it on a Brooks meter, it will give you a range somewhere between 0 and 32 on a Brooks meter of what that tomato is running. And typically you're going to find they're running 2 to 3, 2 to 4, maybe up 2 to 5 on that Brooks meter. They should be 8 to 12. And so how do you know that if you don't have a Brooks meter? Well, as you purchase food from given stores and from given brand names, you will begin to recognize, and you have to keep notes of this, well, which brand name held up in the refrigerator? Which brand name did I purchase that had the sweetest taste, that I felt the best after I ate that, that smelled the best, that when I cooked it, it had the greatest aroma? Those are the things that we have to learn as consumers over time so we learn what looks good and what doesn't look good. Just like as a physician, I can tell if a person walks in the room, ah, that person looks sick. It's because I've recognized that over time and I've been trained, what does a sick person look like versus what does a healthy person look like? And we have to do the same thing with our food selection. And, and unfortunately, organic certification, the downside of it is, it's only a procedural process. It is not an outcome process certification. And as we help train all farmers, we recognize that they can get the nutrient density in there with a little bit more detail to their uh, farming practices and so that all of them will produce high-quality organic foods as opposed to just any organic food. So what if I have the choice of buying shipped-in certified organic from a grocery store or go to the farmer's market, and maybe it's not organic, but it sure looks good. What do I do? Great, and, and that's a good question. And we, we will uh, perhaps buy some of that from the uh, farmer's market, but we're going to ask some questions. And that is, what are you doing uh, on the farm? Are, are, you may not be certified organic. Are you growing them biologically? Uh, what pesticides are you using? Are you using insecticides? Why? Um, what kind of fertility practices are you using? Um, what kind of water are you using? And then, what well, can I taste the product? Can I smell it? Those kinds of things, as we begin to learn, we will recognize, wow, this person over here selling at the farmer's market, uh, how come those all seem to go fastest? Well, maybe there's something over there those people know that we don't. Maybe that's a little bit better quality sweet corn, or maybe that's a little bit better quality cherry or blueberry or something uh, that they're selling. And that's by taste and by how it, how it feels in the mouth, um, the texture, and how it holds up in the refrigerator when you get home. So you have to learn some of those things as you move through. And so it's not exclusive to say that we never purchase uh, uh, things that are not certified organic. Again, we have to become an educated consumer uh, when it comes to those. If we can buy organic, great. We want to do that uh, for a couple reasons. One, because hopefully there's no pesticides on it. And number two, we want to support that industry to be able to continue to grow. And that is happening. Mm. Well, you know, this is so interesting because there is a certain uh, organic company, very large, that ships all over, and the grocery store that is most convenient for me here in New York City, and since we walk everywhere, convenience means a lot, and so I would always buy their stuff, and I would find that maybe a quarter of the time, that box of baby kale or whatever it was would be absolutely horrible, stinky, rotted, well before the expiration date, unopened in the fridge. So it might be possible that what you're telling me is that might be organic, but not perhaps of the quality that you're saying we should look for. That's absolutely correct. Let me give you uh, a case in point. Whole Foods had a store on the East Coast that was uh, receiving tomatoes from a friend of mine by the name of Ed Hewling, and he was growing organic tomatoes. But he only grew them seasonally out of New York. 
Whole Foods went to him and offered, would you please produce uh, tomatoes for our entire East Coast? And he says, well, I can't do that. I'm just a small organic farmer. Because what they found was is that when his tomatoes came online, and they did not have a separate label on them, by the way, so they didn't identify as his, but when they came online, their sales of tomatoes quadrupled up until the time that his went out of season and they got a different supplier of tomatoes in, they went back to um, the status uh, quo of selling. And these are all organic heritage tomatoes. It was all about the nutrient density, and the, which correlates to the actual quality and the taste of these tomatoes. Consumers figure it out pretty fast when you produce a superior quality product. It smells better, it tastes better, and it holds up in the refrigerator. And I think tomatoes may be the real bellwether because there's just something about a homegrown in-season tomato that cannot be duplicated by any other kind of tomato. (laughs) I agree. That's true. It's very telling. Well, let's now move on to GMOs because these are really controversial, and I know that you know, even a lot of, of experts that a, a lot of our, our listeners uh, follow and, and respect a lot, you know, ha- are, are on record as saying, you know, look at the big picture. You know, look at at, at choosing the the more nutritious foods and and worry about GMOs later. That's not a direct quote, but I think that's sort of what certain experts are seeing. And yet, just instinctively to me GMOs seem really scary so can you just give us the uh, kind of short version overall once upon a time my children these are GMOs and here's what you should know about them right see unfortunately it's really kind of an oxymoron to say that you choose the higher nutrient things and worry about the GMOs later um, because um, the GMO aspect is an adulteration of that nutrient density. And so you're not going to get the nutrients out of that food if it is GMO. That is the problem. And that's really what the so-called experts don't really understand because all they have done really is listen to the industry that's trying to promote it and push it. And the thing about it is is that I use GMOs in my medical practice. I do prescribe genetically engineered production of insulin. But that's compared to using porcine or bovine insulin that we used to have to use. So we have fewer side effects from using genetically modified bacteria producing insulin today as a recombinant insulin product for people. We have less problems than we did using the porcine or bovine. But that doesn't mean that it's still perfect. That doesn't mean that it's exactly human insulin and there are people who are actually allergic to it. So... Unfortunately, what happens is is people look at that example. Hey, look how wonderful it's been for medicine. It has to be that good for agriculture. That's simply not true because we don't have the diabetic problem in the corn plant or in the tomato plant or in the radish plant. We don't have those kinds of problems that need genetic alteration in order to produce something that has gone awry, like insulin production. So genetic engineering of a food crop, what it does is it produces a molecular structure in that plant that is foreign to our immune system. And remember, whenever we take food into our body, the first immune system, actually 70% of our immune system, that looks at that is the digestive system. And the digestive system looks at that food and is trying to protect us from taking in things that are foreign to us. And so what happens is it sees genetically engineered food as foreign product and starts producing antibodies against that product. So we start having reactions, sensitivities to those products because they're foreign. Our immune system has never seen them before. But... We could, we could go on and on with that kind of discussion, and, and there's still some debate in there uh, about um, positive and negative. What I really want to get to is we don't need genetically engineered crops. All of the promotion for genetic engineered crops is because of weeds, diseases, and insects. The majority of genetically engineered crops is so that it can uh, apply Roundup or glyphosate or some other herbicide. 
because of weed issues. Well, the bottom line is we don't have weeds because we have a deficiency of herbicide. We have weeds because we have a deficiency of good farm management and good soil management. And you correct the soil issues and you have appropriate farm management, we don't have the weed pressure. We have a lot of organic farmers growing commercial crops all around the world without herbicides. Number two, oh, well, it's because we have insects or we have disease. No, 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 no. There's so much research out there to prove insects do not attack healthy crops. They only attack sick crops. Well, they will say, I've never seen a healthy crop then. That's probably true. You never have. But insects have a different digestive system than humans do. Wow, what a concept. They are not designed to digest the same foods that we are. That's basic biology. And so if people can simply grasp that process, the only reason we have insects out there is because we have an imbalanced nutrient system. And once we balance them, those nutrients are there in the forms that we can use. The plants are self-protected. The insects will not attack them. It's the same thing with disease. It's all about nutrition. It's not about genetics. However, you can't patent that, and you're not going to sell a lot of pesticides by following that process either. So that's really where the debate needs to go. It's about basic science. We don't need genetically engineered crops. Well, since we have them, on certain, I think we're talking at this point, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's uh, canola, cotton, cotton seed oil, um, jump, so corn, but my understanding is not sweet corn, it's the corn that's fed to livestock, um, soy, some of the crookneck squash and Hawaiian papayas, have I left anything out? Well, actually, there is a genetically engineered sweet corn out now. Um, oh. Soybean, of course, as you've already mentioned, and corn are corn and soybeans are the two major uh, quote unquote food crops that are genetically engineered. And it's not just that that goes to animal feed; is also that that goes to tortillas and various things like that. Unless it's organic anymore, it's genetically engineered. If it is involving corn or soybeans, I see. Um, the and so, other thing is, is they're they're pushing more and more to get more fruits and vegetables genetically engineered, in the name of oh we have to go after viruses, we have to go after insects, we have to go after various different diseases, and it's all about um, uh, just perpetuating selling more pesticide, really. So, what is known about the effect of GMOs on human health? I mean, I think there's there's research from from India and places where people are actually working in the fields but I'm unclear on, on what the, the cause and effect is. Right. We haven't, it's illegal actually to do human studies like that, and nobody has put the money out to, to, to do it officially under the IRB. What we have is animal studies. We have mammalian studies, a number of those that have shown basically stomach is the first thing to go, the digestive system, and then we find um, tumors, Mammalian tumors, we see kidney problems as well as um, uh, less growth in, uh, for example, the rat and mice studies and as well as um, um, there were as well pig studies done, uh, guinea pigs as well as chickens and cows. And uh, all around you have those various different maladies that I mentioned, as well as lower milk production, as well as higher mastitis rates when you use genetically engineered corn and soybeans in the cattle feed. Uh, you have lower fertility rates and um, shorter life expectancy. Wow. Oh, that's Im important. But what about uh, that yeah. feed the world thing? You know, that, uh, you know, the new fruits and things coming out are still right. in the name of we've got to feed the world, the starving world, with these wonderful GMOs. Right. And that's the, uh, again, that's that perpetuation of the industry just wanting to sell more. And, and the bottom line is, is that we already have varieties um, that can be organically grown with n that are normally or naturally uh, bred that outproduce anything that the genetic engineering organizations have presented. 
as well, it's all about nutrition. It's all about farm management that gets us those yields as well as the shelf life on those products. And so it's not about we've got to have, oh, this golden rice to get the vitamin A into the uh, uh, children or certain uh, nutrients. It's about nutrition and farm management, none of which is patentable. And the so yields are actually lower on a, a lot of GMO crops, absolutely. contrary to what they claim. Absolutely. University of Nebraska, for one, and a, and a number of other land-grant universities have proven that corn and soybean yields on GMOs are lower than some of the better varieties of non-GMO crops. Well, and, and they and have the, less protein and less nutrients. Correct. So you mentioned feeding the world. How about feeding and providing health care to our neighbors wherever we live? There are a lot of poor people in this country and certainly around the world. So how how do you as a holistic physician offer what is, I think, seen as a kind of elite form of health care to people who don't have a lot of resources? Absolutely. Very good question, and and I get a chance to do that on a daily basis. And what we do is we start with basic things because, uh, uh, unfortunately, um, there's that cultural belief that it's too expensive to eat well to take care of myself. And so we start out with just basic things, eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, getting community gardens, having a small garden, even if it's a potted plant in there, getting away from processed foods and eating more whole foods, getting away from using a microwave. And as well, um, what we talk about is not overcooking our foods, uh, cutting back on the oils so they're not having so many fried foods, particularly don't use canola oil. Um, those kinds of things is where we start uh, with those people. And as well, well, let's get more uh, berries, uh, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, because they're dense nutrient value, they have high antioxidant levels, and they taste good, and they're readily available um, in most general grocery stores. I mean, you can go to Walmart um to buy a number of those kinds of things. Yes, a lot of them are not organic, but for these people to get them started down the road of an improved diet, fruits and vegetables are the first step as opposed to Twinkies and soda pop and that kind of stuff, which is what they're frequently uh, consuming. And Mm. their bodies are screaming for some basic nutrition so that's where we start with them on oh, that. And I get them wow. off dairy. I start with saying, let's stop uh, eating the dairy products so that we're not adding more of the chemicals through which come in through the, the milk as well as we're not hurting the digestive system. So let's get some substitutes in there. And we talk about the substitutes that they can get, almond milk, coconut milk, rice milk, those kinds of things that they can put into the system for that. And for those people that are really wanting to improve themselves, uh, they will make those kinds of changes, and they do well, and they start feeling better. So once they start feeling better, they become more open to additional things. Oh, that's so cool. I always tell my, my students at Main Street Vegan Academy, you've got to tithe your time. You've got to have a certain percentage of people who couldn't afford your services and your education. You've got to give it because it's just so important. So I want to ask you about your book, Food Plague. Could our daily bread be our most life-threatening exposure? But you also mentioned something else. We've got three minutes, so we need to be quick here. You said never use canola oil. Tell me the quick reason why. Well, basically, most of the canola oil is genetically engineered. Even um, even if it's organic? Pardon? Even if it's organic, well, the thing about it is is that I find that most people, if they're using it, what they really mean is, is they're wanting to cook with it, so they're raising the temperature too high, and then we're ending up with some trans stuff that we don't really want. Okay. And a little bit of it put in a salad or something like that. Lisa probably can talk more to that than I can, but what I find... Yeah, 40%, 45% of it is hydrogenated to yeah. keep it on the shelf. Right. And mm-hmm. that was passed by President Bush 
So we never use canola oil because it, it is very rich in omega-3s, and you can't set omega-3s. You can't set flaxseed oil on the shelf in a light no. container, and you can't set fish oil on the shelf. So right. what they did, and to keep the, keep the canola industry going, is to uh, allow them to hydrogenate 40 to 45% of whatever's in your bottle, and that gives uh, you the shelf life. So yes, it's you have all answered that, the and, question. The, and that it did not have to be labeled that way. That was the okay. legality of it, unfortunately. So Good to know. Quick. Okay, food plague. <laughs> Last Ma'am. two minutes. Sorry. Tell us about the book. Right. So the reason I wrote that book is in my practice, people continue to ask me about what's going on with the pesticide. What about organics? What about... Um, GMOs, those kinds of things. And so in doing research over 20 years, well, I wrote the book a few years ago, so over 15 years of medical practice and traveling around the world doing agriculture consulting, what I found was is that food is supposed to be our foundation to our health. But the problem is if food is loaded with pesticides and GMOs, it becomes potentially our most toxic input because we're taking it in every single day. And so that's what that book is about, really, is looking at that dichotomy. Food is supposed to be life-saving for us, but it can actually be killing us as the greatest input we take in every single day. And so it's well-researched. I have some of the latest things on GMOs and glyphosate in there along with the studies as well as I always end my books with now what are we going to do about it and so I talk about what people can do as far as changing their garden if they're going to raise some things changing their their food what to look for in foods and I do discuss the various different issues um, as well relative to um, making choices out of um, um, biologically grown or um, um, there's a couple other things, naturally grown and some of those kinds of things. Well, I'm absolutely fascinated. Food Plague, Could Our Daily Bread Be Our Most Life-Threatening Exposure by Dr. Arden Anderson. Do uh, get yourself a copy. Both of you, oh my gosh, I want to come to your house for dinner and extended conversation. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so, so very much. And thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting our program. Thanks to Jeff Comfort, our engineer. Jeff is supposed to be on vacation next week, but I didn't know that, and I'd already scheduled the show, and because he's so wonderful, he's going to let us go ahead and do it. So please tune in for next week with Julie Piot. That is Rich Roll's lovely wife and her brand-new book, This Cheese is Nuts. Really great vegan cheese recipes. And also Rip Esselstyn of Engine 2 fame. Good looking former firefighter triathlete. So we're going to have a great show. And thanks to Jeff for uh, letting us do that. And thanks to to you all for listening. You just um, light up my life. And that's for real. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net.
Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network. Subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.